Um, tell me, what is, and you, you feel free to, to speak, though, uh, based on what Basil's, uh, the lack of interaction you gave Basil, I don't know how much interaction I'll get, but tell me, what's, what's your uh, favorite flavored drink? Sweet tea? Does anyone else have a favorite flavored drink? Lemonade? Barks root beer? Okay. What did you say? Mocha. Mocha. Mm. Sophisticated. I like it. <laughs> Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew. There you go. <laughs> a flavor for, for, the, for, the, for the rest of us. Stony Tango Easy. Oh, Stony Tango Easy. Wild. It sounds well. <laughs> nice. It's great. If, if, if you were to ask me that question when I was about five or six years old, I would have answered that my favorite flavored drink was grape. I, I loved the flavor of grape. I loved uh, grape fruit loops or great uh, uh, fruit roll-ups, grape soda, grape flavored suckers. Anything else? Anyone else enjoy that, that flavor of grape? Some of you? Yes? Okay, I see that hand. Interestingly enough, I actually didn't care that much for actual grapes, <laughs> but I loved the grape flavor and grape-flavored treats. In fact, uh, and I say this to my shame, when I was a young boy, I would sometimes uh, pretend to be sick with a cough. And you know why I did that? Because I loved the grape-flavored cough medicine my mom would give me. Now, something I didn't know as a young boy, but that I now know, is that not all medicines taste good, right? In fact, the majority of them don't, do they? But we still take medicine, right? And why do we take medicines, especially the ones that don't taste so great? Why do we do that? Taste so great. Don't taste so great. We take them in order to fight off an illness. Right? And truth be told, there are lots of illnesses out there, aren't there? Right? But we use medicine as a way from preventing disease or fighting back any kind of illness. And there are a lot out there. And this is also true spiritually. For the past several weeks, we've been studying Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. And in these chapters, the author is concerned that his original readers, and by extension us today, the author is concerned that we won't be stricken with the spiritual disease, the spiritual disease of unbelief. That is that we wouldn't harden our hearts towards God like Israel of old did. The author has a burden, and his burden is that we would not be afflicted with the disease of a hardened heart. So you know what the author does? Like a good doctor in our text this morning, he prescribes, we could say, some medicine. This is to say the author of Hebrews provides, please hear me, a biblical truth that can help us 
fight off the dangerous, and, I'm, and I really am not exaggerating when I say this, the very dangerous disease of unbelief. And this is part of the reason why I've chosen to slow down our study of Hebrews these past several weeks. You see, there's a truth here in chapter 4, verse 13, that I'm going to suggest can transform and alter the way you live your life if you allow it. And what's that truth? Well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Hebrews 4. That's page 1002 in that white paperback Bible. In chapter 4, the first 10 verses, the author has been pressing home this exhortation to the reader, and that's to be diligent to enter God's final rest. Strive, pursue after Jesus, keep believing, keep trusting in Him. And we're going to pick things up there in verse 11 and read verses 11 through 13 with our focus this morning being on verse 13. He writes this. He says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. There's the disease, right? There's there's the thing, the illness he doesn't want us to have. Verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you want to know what the Bible believes about itself, here you go. And then the author transitions from talking about the Word of God to God Himself, verse 13, and no creature is hidden from His sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. I uh, recently had lunch with a dear friend who had spent over 40 years uh, managing a company, running a company, and managing all sorts of people. And during the course of our conversation while we were having lunch, he reminded me of an important truth when it comes to leading and managing people. This casually in our conversation, he said, and remember Aaron, he said this phrase, he says, People don't do what you expect, they do what you inspect. Have you ever heard that phrase before? People don't do what you expect, they do what you inspect. This is to say, uh, simply giving someone a title and then expecting them to do something is a poor motivation for results. Rather, assigning someone responsibilities 
and then letting them know that you're going to inspect their work, that's far better for achieving results. People don't do what you expect in, in the business world there, and in, probably in all sorts of lives. They do what you inspect. I mean, even think of your parents. You can tell your children to make their beds. You can tell your children to clean their rooms. And you can expect to them to do it. But if you follow up and say, I'm going to inspect your work, which one's going to get the greater results? Right? Tell him, I'm going to come up there to inspect your work. Friend, in the passage I just read, this text reveals, please hear me, a weighty, a heavy truth. And you know what that is? It's that God is going to inspect your life. Hebrews 4.13 teaches this sobering reality, and that is, friend, you will give an account to God for your life. Friend, there is coming, we could say, a great inspection. There is a coming day where you will have to stand before God in all His terrifying glory and give an account for everything in your life. Your life is going to be inspected. And I want to suggest to you that this is more terrifying than you might realize. Just a few verses later, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, the author states that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Indeed it is. But this morning, before we consider how this frightening reality ought to shape the way we live, I first want us to consider, please hear me, why? Why is it that you? Why is it that me? Why is it that each of us will give an account to God? That is, why is every person in this room who can hear my voice why is it that every person in this room is accountable to God for his or her life? So what I'd like to do is show you how the Bible answers that question. And to do that, what I'd invite you to do is, is just turn over with me to Romans chapter 1. That's page 934 in the paperback Bible. I'm also going to throw it up here on the screen. So you will give an account to God for your life. Well, why? Why are we accountable to Him? I want you to see how the Apostle Paul answers this question for us. How is it that we are accountable to God? Follow along as I read. We're going to look at verses 18 through 21. So Paul writes this. 
He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, the truth that there is a God who's revealing his wrath against all mankind. Humanity knows there's a God and they suppress it. Because notice what Paul goes on to say, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. And what has God shown to all people at all times? For his invisible attributes. What invisible attributes? Namely, his eternal power. God is powerful and his divine nature. He's different than us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. When, Paul? Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. But one of the, the great things about this time of year, this Advent season, is the food. Amen? <laughs> think, think for a moment just about your kitchen, okay? Let's take brownies. Well, when you make brownies, you have a couple of items out there on your kitchen table. You have the recipe for the brownies that's on the back of the box, and you also have various other kitchen equipment, such as a measuring cup, right? Well, one of the steps of making brownies is to pour oil into a measuring cup, right? Listen to me. The cup is an instrument of measurement. It tells you what is. There is this much oil. The cup cannot tell you how much oil ought to be in the brownie mix. Who tells you that? The recipe on the back of the box. Only, only the recipe on the back of the box can tell you what ought to be, how much oil ought to be in there. The measuring cup declares, we could say this way, isness. There is this much oil you've chosen to pour. The cup does not tell you oughtness. That it does not tell you how much oil ought to be in the recipe. That comes from the back of the box. Now, can you imagine all the problems you'd get into if you use the instrument of isness to determine what you ought to do? Tell me, what kind of brownies would you have if you ignored the recipe and just went with whatever you poured into the cup? What kind of brownies would you have? Messed up brownies, right? Or, or for you men, think about your tape measure. 
Your tape measure does not tell the board how wide it ought to be. No, you tell the table saw guide how wide the board ought to be. The tape measure just tells you how wide the board is. Okay? The Bible presents two categories of revelation. They're often referred to as general and special revelation. And here's what you need to know. Both are authoritative because both come from God. And in Romans 1, we get the Bible's clearest teaching on general revelation. Notice, Paul makes it very clear that God has revealed Himself to all people. The object of general revelation is God. What's general about general revelation is the audience. God is revealing truth about Himself to all people at all times. And what I want to argue and help you to see is that Paul in Romans 1 goes out of his way to show that general revelation screams there is a God. What is being revealed in general revelation is not truth about the world, but truth about God himself. That is, general revelation has God as both its author and end. He reveals himself through creation from what he has made. In other words, we can think of it like this. General revelation is like the measuring cup. It declares what is. There is a God. And because this revelation is from God, it's authoritative. And this is why you and I will give an account to God. Then there's special revelation. Special revelation refers to God's words addressed to certain people. We've been learning about this in the book of Hebrews, have we not? I mean, tell me, how does Hebrews begin? The very first words of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1, are this. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in the last days He has spoken to us by his son. You know what that's a description of? Special revelation. God's special revelation is God's word. So so think of the two like this. General revelation is like the measuring cup. It authoritatively declares what is. There is a God. Yet because of sin's blinding effects, general revelation is insufficient to save and sanctify. Special revelation is like the brownie recipe on the back of the box. It holds authority on how one ought to live life under the God who is. So we could say it like this. General revelation declares isness. There is a God. 
Special revelation declares oughtness. This is how you ought to live life under the God who is. And notice how this distinction is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 22. There's just a couple observations I'd like to draw your attention to. First, look again at verse 18. He writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Tell me, class, what is being revealed from heaven? The wrath of God. God's wrath is being revealed right now and it is a foretaste of judgment to come. And you know how God's wrath is being revealed right now? As the rest of Roman 1 states, it's being revealed right now by God handing humans over to sin. Please hear me. Listen. Sin is so bad, it's a punishment for itself. God reveals his wrath by giving sinful humans and turning them over to even more sin. And notice what we learn about sinful man in this verse. It states that sinful man knows this reality. We all know there is a God who will judge us. And what does sinful man do with this knowledge? Tell me, what does he do? Say it like you mean it. They suppress it. That the truth of God is suppressed suggests that the truth of God was possessed. All people know there is a God to whom they are accountable. This is why when sharing the gospel with someone, it's right to assume that they already know there is a God. We don't have to prove it. In fact, even right now while I'm preaching to you, some of you here this morning aren't Christians. I do not have to prove to you that there is a God. You know it, but you suppress it. The Bible clearly teaches that all humans know there is a God, and in their sin they cannot bear the guilt of their sin before God, so they suppress it. And I want to ask you, is that you this morning? Paul goes on. Look at what he says now in verse 19 and 20. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Notice, this is very important. General revelation is not something that people discover, is it? According to this passage, general revelation is not learning about how your lungs work or how the chemicals in the brain function or the laws of physics. This is why I keep saying the object of general revelation is God. General revelation has God as both its author and end. He reveals himself through creation. 
And I would suggest that if we're basing our categories from Scripture, then the ability that people have to know the laws of physics or any of the other disciplines is not due to the theological reality of general revelation, but rather the doctrine of what some call creation kindness or common grace. I think of Psalm 145.9. That verse states that, listen to this, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. This means that God shows kindness to all people, whether or not they have experienced salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And one aspect of God's kindness is that he's given people the ability to reason, to deduce, and to to observe aspects of God's creation. But that's clearly not Paul's point and the point he's making in Romans 1, is it? Paul is not arguing that God reveals truths to all people about creation. He's arguing that God reveals truths about God to all people from creation. I mean, look at the phrases Paul uses. What can be known about God? It's obvious. It's plain to them. Indeed, as the next phrase states, God has shown it to them. And what has he shown? Look at what he says there in verse 20. I'm going to highlight a couple of words. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Faith, listen, God is really, really powerful. This is why we do not ascribe to Mother Nature what solely belongs to God. Eradicate from your vocabulary the word lucky. Right? There is no such thing as fortune or unfortune. There is God's providence and my responsibility or irresponsibility. Right? God is powerful. There's no luck in creation. And notice, God's hidden attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, are clearly seen in creation. So you know what that means? It means that when we look at creation, you know what we should see? A powerful God. We should see a God who's powerful and different than us. That's the point of general revelation. To look at creation and not acknowledge God is an incredible offense. As New Testament commentator Doug Moo has written, God in his essence is hidden from human sight, yet much of him and much about him can be, I would say should be, seen through the things he has made. So please notice, studying God's creation is not the same as general revelation. General revelation reveals God. This is Paul's burden in Romans 1. So, so let me just practically say this. So if you see something in creation and you don't see God, you've missed the point and misused the revelation of that thing. 
So when a scientist looks at a rock, or when a scientist looks at a tree, and if they don't see God in the rock, if they don't see God in the tree, namely how God is powerful, eternal, divine, then listen to me, then they have misused the revelation of that rock and tree. According to Paul, that rock, that tree, along with everything else in creation, especially humans, is screaming, there is a God. He is. Mere scientific study is not the same thing as general revelation. And and listen, the implications of this are legion. You see, what many do is they use this category of general revelation in the exact opposite way as it's defined for us here in Romans 1. Namely, they claim that general revelation is general truths about God's world, not God. And this shows up all over the place. Have you ever heard the phrase, all truth is God's truth? That comes from this line of thinking. And what this line of thinking does is it bestows upon observations about nature the same authority defined in Romans 1. So, for example, since all truth is God's truth, observations and writings about the field of psychology from Freud and Maslow, those ought to bear now the same weight and authority as Scripture, right? If all truth is God's truth, the wisdom of man now is on par with Scripture. It bears the same authority because the argument goes general revelation is about truth about creation. And I'm arguing Roman 1 says the exact opposite. Dr. Jeff Foray is an author and counselor and he received his Ph.D., from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he's really helpful here. He writes this. He says, In this way of thinking, people equate scientific discoveries with general revelation. However, in doing this, they've also redefined general revelation. General revelation is no longer about God, but about creation. And I would suggest that's where the error is. They're studying creation as an end in and of itself, rather than a pointer to God. Romans 1 is going out of its way to say, no, all this around us is a measuring cup that says, it is, God is, there is a God. If I look at the rock, if I look at the tree, and according to Paul, do not see that there's an eternal, powerful God, I've misused the revelation of that item. And he goes on to say, general revelation as given is complete. It's not a matter of progressive discovery the way scientific research is. So there is something we can know about God from creation. And this is what makes us accountable to him. This is why we are without excuse. However, sinful men suppresses this truth. This is what condemns humanity. And notice, Paul identifies in verse 21 what is the fundamental sin of all humanity. Look at verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, what? They did not honor Him as God, or what? Say it. Give thanks to Him. 
but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What is man's fundamental sin? It's this. It's a failure to honor God as God and to thank Him. And I would suggest this is the fundamental problem we encounter in each and every conflict and problem we experience. People fail to honor God as God and thank Him. I mean, what would it, what would it look like if you purposed what if it looked like, if you purpose, the next time you speak to your spouse, the next time you speak to your siblings, the next time you speak to your parents, that you purpose, I'm going to honor God as God. And I'm going to give thanks to him for this person. What, what would it look like for you the next time you interact with someone in this church? I'm going to honor God as God. I'm going to, I'm going to live for him. What if, what if you replaced the thought that you're owed a sibling or a parent or a spouse that loves and respects you the way you want and instead remember that outside of Christ you're owed nothing but God's wrath and instead chose to thank God for your sibling or your spouse or your parent. Even your spouse or your sibling or your parent and all their irritations knowing that God has a purpose for them in your life. What if you chose to do that? Our fundamental problem is that we fail to honor God as God in all areas of our lives and that we're ingrates. We fail to thank God. And we, and we see this pattern all over Scripture. Here's the pattern. Unbelief, then idolatry. Unbelief, then idolatry. I fail to honor God as God, meaning I don't trust Him and take Him in His Word and believe who He says and trust Him. And in my unbelief, I then run to idols. So, let's bring this full circle, okay? Why will we give an account to God? Because God has clearly revealed Himself to all people at all times in all creation. And this authoritative revelation is sufficient to condemn God holds us accountable to it. However, what general revelation does not reveal are truths like God's love, His mercy, His saving purposes in Jesus Christ. So you know what we need? We need His special revelation. This is why when we studied Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, a primer text on God's special revelation, we said that this... God's word is the only sufficient tool for life's problems. Why? Because, listen to me, please, if we accept the Bible on its own terms, and I would suggest we must accept the Bible on its own terms, then according to the Bible, Scripture can do what nothing else can. For what does the Bible claim about itself? Well, the author of Hebrews clearly spells it out in verse 12, does he not? God's word is what? It's living, it's piercing, and it's discerning. Friend, if the solution, if, if the problem is in the soul, then only God's word can get there. So general revelation screams, isness, there is a God. This is Romans 1. Special revelation screams, oughtness, this is how you ought to live life under the God who is. 
And this, by way of application, this is why we place Scripture as the highest authority in our lives. For it alone tells us how we ought to live. And in Hebrews 4.13, the author reminds us why we ought to live lives that are pleasing to God. Because you're going to give an account to God for your life. So why live a life that is pleasing to Him? Why be diligent to enter this rest? Well, consider what we look back here in verse 13. There's just two quick things I want to draw to your attention. First, notice that before God, you are seen. Look at Hebrews 4.13 once more. He says, And no creature is hidden from his sight. Uh, have, have any of you put up your Christmas tree yet? Has anyone put up the Christmas tree yet? Okay, yeah, very good. One of the traditions we have in our family is, is a game called uh, Hide the Pickle. We have, a, we have a small pickle ornament. Maybe you do as well. And as you can imagine, with it being small and green, it can be pretty hard to find on a tree. So every year, one of the kids hides the pickle somewhere on the tree, and the rest of the family has to find it. I think my son Daniel hid, it, hid the pickle this year, and no one has yet found it. <laughs> In fact, Daniel can't even find it. <laughs> and he's the one who put it on the tree. The, the, this pickle is hidden from our sight. Notice the strong language the author uses in the first half of verse 13. He states that no creature is hidden from God's sight. If the world was a Christmas tree and every person an ornament, even a small pickle ornament is seen by God. Friend, God's eye is on every human being. And it's not like the eye of Sauron, right, which only occasionally gazes upon someone. No, God's watchful eye is upon you 24-7. There is not a moment when God is not watching and observing every aspect of your life. And have you considered this? That your life is constantly being watched and recorded by God? I cannot overemphasize how important and transformational this is. Friend, all of your life is lived before the God who is. All of your life is lived before God. The question is, do you live like it is true? To, to take, for example, siblings who are fighting with each other. In their fighting, you know what they are missing? They are missing the fact that before they ever take a punch, they are first fighting with God. The conflict in that room is because those two children are at war with the God who made them in their hearts. And part of the reason why they're giving way to fisticuffs or whatever argument it might be because they fail to see. We're, we are seen by God right now. But then second and more to the point, before God, you're completely exposed he says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, 
but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Think, of, think back when you were a little kid, or maybe now if you are a little kid, and when you got caught doing something as a child, and you then had to stand before your mom and dad. Remember those days? Remember you got caught and you, and you had to stand before your mom and dad? Tell me, what did your head often do in those moments? Kind of do one of these things, right? You look down and away. You, you, you avoided making eye contact with them. This imagery here of naked and exposed, commentators tell us it's probably used in one of two ways. Or it, it used, in other literature, we see it used in one of two ways. It is either used to describe a wrestler who has grabbed the opponent by his throat, thus bringing the foes face to face, or it is used to describe a criminal who had a sharp knife bound to his throat, the tip under the chin, to keep his head raised up before so he could look at the judge. Either way, in both instances, it vividly depicts when you stand before God to give an account, there's none of this. Your head is going to be face to face with your powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, supreme, and glorious God. Indeed, that the language here forces us to imagine ourselves naked, held helpless, in God's grip, close to his omniscient eyes. And in that moment, God cannot be fooled. Duplicity and hypocrisy will not work. All our sins, all our transgressions, our whole life is going to be laid bare before our Creator. And this should frighten us. You know what this means? How we're going to be naked and exposed before God? It means that we need clothes. But not just any clothes. We need righteous robes. Indeed, we need the robes of a great high priest. And friend, that's precisely what God gives sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Friend, one day you will give an account to God. As Hebrews 9.27 goes on to state, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You will be judged. Yet please hear me, there is good news for sinners like you and me, sinners who suppress this truth about God and our unrighteousness. And that good news is that the eternal Son of God the Lord Jesus Christ, He came to earth to live the perfect, God-honoring, God-thankful life you have failed to live. Where we have repeatedly failed to honor God as God. Jesus did honor God. Where we have failed to thank God. Jesus has thanked Him. And as our great high priest, Jesus died on the cross to absorb the full wrath of God. We're owed for our sin. I mean, consider this. Jesus, who did not sin, he died to receive the full punishment for your sin. 
right? In my place condemned he stood. Then three days later, he rose from the dead, proving himself to be the Son of God. And friend, hear this good news. That guilt you feel, that angst you have, that gnawing feeling that you know you're going to be judged for your sin, that can be completely eradicated. You can be completely forgiven of your sin and made right with God simply by faith. That is, you can be saved from the wrath of God for your sin by simply forsaking your sin and trusting that Christ's death and resurrection is sufficient to save you. And have you done that? Are you still suppressing the God who is that you're accountable to? Oh, friend, let today be the day of salvation for you. And for those of you who do belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, let us commit afresh to looking at God's word alone for how you ought to live your life. There is a God. May we esteem his word as the highest authority for how we ought to live. Amen? Let's pray.